I've crossed paths with so many people in my career, a lot of them in passing. It's easy to feel a connection with someone and intend to follow up, but never get around to it. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that it takes so much more time and effort to sustain friendships than when I was younger. But sometimes, fate provides a second chance, and that's exactly what I had with today's guest, Hadi Salehi. He and I, at one point, were teaching at the Art Center College of Design, and though we were familiar with each other, we never had a proper sit-down. But because of a reintroduction through a mutual friend, I had the chance to sit down and learn about Hadi's fascinating story as an immigrant and an artist. Hadi uses photography in a variety of different ways, including using different film development processes, distressing and even writing on his negatives and prints. He doesn't allow the limitations of his medium to define his work because he wants to do so much more than simply distract you for a few seconds. And also, if you look at the, the when, when you go to the gallery, sometimes watch people, especially photo gallery, people stay in your images maybe one second, two seconds, they just pass by, they don't look at. I said, I have to change this one. I want to make you to stay a little bit longer on my image. You get it, not to get it, but that Staying longer in one image to next image is is just a goal for me because I do believe on that little bit longer fraction of the second, your brain gonna see other things, and they keep keep looking, keep looking, and complete. I, I, the people coming asking me, "What do you write?" It really doesn't matter. That's like I'm playing with you. I want you to stay, you stay a little bit longer on my image. I work very hard for this one. It doesn't matter. It's a broken narrative. You know, what do you want to know? For decades, he earned his living as an educator. But he has always been creating. When I visited his downtown studio, there was an abundance of work, each reflecting a different aspect and period in his creative life. His dedication and passion exist in every inch of that space and informs all he does today as his work makes its way into the world of fine art. I do really trust myself. I, I, I think I don't want to be look like uh, Irving Penn. I don't want to be look like all those big cats. I want to be just myself as an artist. If I don't sell it, I'm so happy making it. You can't, you can't, I can't tell you, describe you how joyful it is to making it. Because you can put the price on it. If they like it, they buy it. If they don't like it, I like to have it. I have that attitude and uh, I work hard to become in this one. I don't uh, uh, compromise this. When I was working for Gotcha in the 90s, I said, oh, we like Craig Gorman. Can you do that? I said, no, go hire Craig Gorman. <laughs> we'll talk to Hadi about his life growing up in Iran with a parent who was an addict and what it was like for him to adapt to living in the U.S. during the Iranian Revolution. This is Ibarion X, and welcome back to The Candid Frame. Hadi, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you. Really looking forward to a chance to talk with you. 
we've crossed paths because we were both teaching at Art Center, but we never, I, we, if we had any sort of conversation, it was pretty cursory. So um, thanks to Steve Lavoie for uh, putting yeah. us together. Thank you, Steve. And reading about you and looking at your work, it's really, really fascinating. So many of the photographers that I've interviewed over the last 14 years, they're always often known for sort of a singular piece of work. And with you taking a look at it, it seems like I could imagine you being four or five different people, you know, because you, you explore the medium in such different ways. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you more about that. But I, I want to start with your upbringing in, in Iran. Tell me about where exactly in Iran did you grow up? Tell me about your, tell me about your parents. I was the uh, first uh, child of uh, my mother but like a sixth, seventh child of my dad because my dad had uh, three times before marriage, marrying my mom, had three oh. different wives and with the children. My dad is from Tehran and my mother is from uh, Shahsawar, which is the city north of uh, Iran by the Caspian Sea. So I grew up in the landscape of the orange groves and the rice field. My dad was an orange grower who sold oranges, and mom was a slave of my dad Mm. because of the sexism in Iran at the time. It still exists. And she had to work house inside the house as a housewife. And he also was an opium addict. Oh, wow. Yeah. One of my primary jobs every morning, which I still remember it, it was getting up early and getting things ready for him when he gets up and prays, then had to spliff or smoke his opium, then go to work. He wasn't lazy. He was the most hard-working, sweet man, very disciplinary, and uh, wants us to get educated. Didn't want us to be like him. So I studied. He pushed me to study uh, mathematics, because it would open up more avenue for you to make money. Mm-hmm. But I was fascinated by literatures. And Iranians have amazing, rich literatures of the stories yeah. and poetry. So it was so funny. I was a math major, but my uh, literatures, you know, the other part of the not related to math, always was higher than my, my uh, mathematics. Then uh, I... Uh, Graduated high school from Tehran, Babakan University. In Iran, in order to get to university that days, you had to pass to take a big test to go because a university would accept, for example, 10,000 and 1 million students would apply to get in. And I tried it once, couldn't make it, so I went to army. Because, you know, during the Shah's time, you had to go to the army. But Shah had a program which would, after six months of the practicing as army, and you became, you would train, became a teacher, and would go to the places with a population of like maybe 100 people. Mm-hmm. Because, you know... Of the situation at the time, and I went to uh, taught in uh, border of Iran and Russia, which is Azerbaijan now, those days was Russia, and I taught for 18 months, and I loved it. I asked them if I can stay one more year, and I was there for one more year, and then I came back, 
and took the test, and I got in Tehran University in education program. Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to your to your parents. Okay. You, mentioned, you mentioned your dad, but while, we, while you were giving me a tour of your space and asked about your mother, you, you noted your, that your mom is your hero. Yes. And when you were growing up with your mom and your and your dad, you said that your mom was sort of restricted, very limited in terms of what she could do. But yes. did you have any sense of what she had might have dreamed for herself? Had she been able to have the freedom to be able to do that? Did she ever talk to you in terms of what she would have loved to have done? Not that much. No? But she always told me, make sure you get your education. That's all she could tell me that. And, mm-hmm. and always told me that, don't do whatever your dad does. Which, by which she meant the drug. Yes. Okay. Well, also, at the time, you know, history of the opium in, in the world, mm-hmm. you know, war of opium in China, in Hong Kong, and it was English uh, propaganda. To My dad said when he was young, the English people would come out and tell him, hey, do you want opium? My dad says, yeah, I want opium. He says, but you have to give, after you split the opium, there is some resin over there. Mm-hmm. And they would say, but you got to give those resin to me back. So that says a lot of uh, houses, people were spliffing and then giving that resin to the Englishman. Actually, mm-hmm. that was a propaganda of the making them addicted. It, it, it's, it's a history of brutality, you know. Yeah. It was a custom, sort of, like like Afghanistan, you know. They, it was, you know, the old man would had to smoke opium, you know. It was just part of, mom never liked it. Yeah. And always told me after I would make things ready for her, she would come out and says, out. Yeah, because you were preparing that for your dad. Yeah, it's, it's a crisis. It's, it's really yeah. a crisis. And he, sometimes he would woke you up at like five in the morning. Don't forget my fire. <laughs> and there's a certain smell to that, isn't there? Yeah. Very strong scent. She would grab us and, and run away from the scene. Uh-huh. And then always she said, don't do that. Your dad is sick. She ne- he needs to do that. Mm. Did you find yourself feeling angry and resentful to your, towards your dad for having to, to do that? Yes, I did. But uh, not that much control from me to, mm-hmm. to do that but I never told anybody now I'm holding and exposing that one those days I couldn't tell my oh, yeah. classmate hey, my, da- yeah, oh, yeah, my dad is living opium yeah. oh my god yeah yeah I can imagine how difficult that would have would have been as a kid families are always have their secrets and even as a kid you know certain it's things you don't certain don't things you can't do and expose it yeah. to the different places you know but also it was really good my, I have a brother one year older than me and he was pretty smart he still is he says every time my dad was high he says okay let's go ask for money <laughs> I said what is he you're gonna beat us he says no 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 he's he's in a good mood and he would get, get money and yeah and uh, we had to share whatever we had well as you mentioned in, in, in Iran in that part of the world it is so rich with music Poetry, literature, was that part and parcel of the education being introduced to to that to that world? Because here in the states, especially now, what you learn in schools 
is completely separate for, in terms of any sort of awareness of the arts, other than what is commercially available on TV, movies, radio stations, on the computer. Paint a picture for me in Iran in terms of how the culture, in terms of music, poetry, literature, became part of you, your upbringing. I think they were mostly amusing for the kid my age at that time because nothing else was going on. Wow. And you had to read and you have to make yourself you know, useful at the time because the summertime there was no school, so reading was big. And also cinema. I loved the idea of the storytelling as for the cinema and the Indian movies was big and cheap. Oh, were they? Yeah, you could see two, three movies like a week for very less money than, you know, when you go to see American movies. That was probably fat to be the PhD that reading is is essential, especially I had a neighbor and he would give his, he was two, three years older than me. Every time he would finish his book, he would come knock my door, so read this one. It's oh, really okay. fantastic. And uh, sort of like hanging out with the people are the same way of uh, thinking you have. You know, the other kids, I was fortunate. I was from like a middle class family, so I could buy books and uh, read a lot of uh, kids my age they had to go during the summertime they had to help their parents for the rice field because they were all rice grower mm-hmm. they had other things to do rather me my dad was you know he he was a middle class lower middle class so he would provide us with the would buy books for us and I think it was mostly part of the parents' strategy to keep you at home, not to go in the street. Yeah, that makes sense. And my brother never liked reading, but I was the one I just fascinated by the going through it and see what the life is about these stories. And were the stories um, by mostly uh, writers from Iran, or were they just from every, well, anything and tell everything? tell you the truth... If you look at the 60s and 70s, uh, communism, Russians were very, very, very smart. You could buy like a Hemingway for like a 50 cents, but you could buy Chukhov or the other Russians writers mm-hmm. for like a 10 cents. Okay. You know how the yeah. propaganda, luckily they were amazing writers, you know. Yeah, a few of those yeah, Russians yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They were amazing writers. And eventually, you know, when you grow up, your your taste changes and you change the... I still love Chekhov mm-hmm. because his stories was like street people, you know. He he taught the street is, is a university, free university. You can learn a lot of the people's behavior, how they functions, how they're... So tell me about, you know, you came here to the United States at, at the point between... Uh, the fall of the Shah and the the revolution. Tell me about that time, because that's a very tumultuous time, whether you were there or whether you were back here, you know, because it had an impact on 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 so many so many people. But for you, you you had come here as a student, so you were yeah here on a on a student well, visa. Was that right? Shaw had the idea called the uh, Open University, which it would get the tube TV to the small cities. 
the people couldn't come get education through the go actually get inside the university and you would look at their program they would air from Iran in channel three then they after each three months they would come back to Iran, to Tehran and would take a test and actually you would get your degree from there mm-hmm. it was amazing and I was part of the group of the people because I was studying education and library science in Tehran University. So they picked me up to come be here to become producer. So I can go back, produce different lectures for the students so they can get education, you know. But I got here September 4. By November, America decided to get rid of Shah. Mm-hmm. And uh, we stayed here. It was then Reagan took over. It was a really tough time, you know. And uh, a lot of students at the time, Iranian students, then they took the hostages. It became really chaos. We had to go. I was at Pasadena City College. We had to go every Friday. City would provide uh, a principal and all Iranian students on the bus to immigration office. They would check us out. Do we have I-94 visa, student visa, or we don't have it? They deported a lot of people. But tell you the truth, the first day they took me over there, there was a lady, and she looked at me and went all the way at the end of the line, came back, and to the principal, don't bring him in here anymore. Mm. So that, that was my key. And the Pasadena City College had the amazing teacher and photography program. His name was the guy I loved him, still do, was a Michael Mems. He was, uh, you know, I, I like to call him black people, you know, because I love the word of the black, you know. And uh, he took me, he looked at me and Mike says, now you know what, how we suffered centuries in this country. Mm. And every weekend he would, he and his wife would take me to the beach. They sort of like took care of me and put me under shelter shelters and you know we're looking nobody is going to do something to this Iranian guy those days we were an Iranian we were Iranian you know and I always would say I didn't run I had (laughs) it it was ugly yeah I can I can only imagine what it must have been like especially a young kid away from your family yeah on your own for the most part and all of a sudden you're just you know the nature of politics in the world just suddenly transform your world in terms of the hostility that could be directed towards you and just the unpredictability of of just whether or not you could stay here in the the first place. Yeah, that's really dark time, which you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. So did photography at that time sort of help you sort of, you know, have a means of sort of not only creativity, but a means of escape from all the tensions at the time? Yes, that was, you know, I, after that, uh, I would go downtown LA on a Broadway. I love the Broadway because I could get mixed with other Mexicans over there because I'm a brown man. And it was so comfortable in the whole house. Just like you feel like (laughs) you're among your own people, you know, it was safe. So I did a lot of street photography. I shot from beginning for some reason. I loved this street art, you know, how these things would paint them and they would go up there and watching them, you know. I liked that one. I was looking forward to... to get more time to go there in downtown LA and, mm. and be comfortable. That's the only place I found my temple. And, and for, for me, and you can tell me, because one of the things I'm kind of 
fat, I'm trying to understand your, your process here in, in talking with you. And for me, the thing that I enjoy about street photography is the nature, one, of the unpredictability mm-hmm. of the street, but tapping into the natural rhythm of the street. Because for me, I think that life, and especially on the street, has a rhythm to it. Yes. And then if you are able to get in sync with it, you can not only see different things sort of coming together, but at some point you can sense the potential of something that could come together. And then when you recognize it, you, and then when you're able to capture it, it's not the fact that you photographed something, but that you were able to get into a space where you could feel the moment, not just see it. And I think people who shoot along those lines get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious as to whether, is that what your experience was in the street or was it some variation of that? It would definitely help me out to make that decisive moment. Am I going to click it or I'm not going to click it? And the rhythm of the street will take you there. As you look and you look, you have a choice to shoot it or not to shoot it. You just keep moving on and going up and down. And I always were interested to show a weak side of the society, you know, the things mm-hmm. it needs to be improved, you know. As a, as a young uh, photographer, I always loved it, you know. Of the mise-en-scene you are photographing, the man and the woman sitting and selling uh, tortilla or selling oranges, you know, and their their looks are unhappy. They don't want to be here. And you say, God, what the energy for like a box of oranges, a, a human being sitting behind it and trying to sell it or looking at the wandering people, you know. And Los Angeles, the beauty of Los Angeles is that you can walk like a maybe five, ten blocks and get another community. Oh, that's a Korean town. These are looking different and they behave different. They are, they are not selling oranges in the street, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, street photography is fairly, quote unquote, straightforward. You're documenting something that's in front of you. And if you're able to capture that quintessential moment, you feel good and you've accomplished something. But you've gone far beyond that. And your work is known for the fact that you just, you're not into just making the, the image for, for image sake. That for you, that is merely the starting point from which you explore the image further in terms of the manipulation of the negative or the print or the combination of different photographs. Where did you start thinking, or what was the inspiration for taking that step? Um, always want to do film, but I could only afford to do photography. But it's very hard to tell a story in two-dimensional space, you know. That's why I'm adding other elements, you know. I always thought, oh, this one needs something else. I should do this one, not should do that one. I would create the idea of what I'm going to do and I sleep with it then I come back and do different things you know and as I told you I love imperfections in analog photography because sometimes creates a beauty in it but just staying with one subject and looking one image eventually will take you different places you know like if you look at the your back the image over there it's just a light leaking 
I had to put the after my exposure I have to carry on like a hundred feet to go to the machine and get it processed. If there is a hole in the back, by the time you come through the light to go to the dark room to load it, that hole creates some some other things on it. Right. First you don't know it, you know, you get oh then you see, wow, this looks good. You know, for that image behind you, you have to, if you want to do it digital, you have to write really good program to do that. Mm-hmm. I think mostly the accident and the vulnerability of the medium of the analog photography made me to just keep moving and thinking another, what I can do with this one I have. Am I going to get it more expanded yeah. I'm taking it it's just constant agitation you know constant uh, developing on that one you know going from here to there 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 then you know that's really interesting the, your comparison to, to, to film because with, with with film if you put a picture of a person uh, footage of a person smiling and you put and you cut it with a, a film of a dog or a piece of ice cream or something like that, and then you take that same person but have them frowning, and you put the same images and you cut to those same images, the reaction of the audience is going to be completely different because of that juxtaposition. That one image in one piece of film with another piece of film and the emotion will completely transform how people think they are supposed to experience or how they naturally experience the scene. And I think that that for you, that's sort of what you're trying to do with a two-dimensional fixed image is that you're trying to elicit the same sort of emotional visceral experience by juxtaposing all these different elements That's and correct. seeing what more you can get from just the one the one image is that yeah this is completely true i mean okay. you I, I go i love that way and also if you look at the, the when, when you go to the gallery sometimes watch people especially photo gallery people stay in your images maybe one second yeah. two seconds they just pass by they don't look at I said I have to change this one I want to make you to stay a little bit longer on my image you get it not to get it but that staying longer in one image to next image is is just a goal for me because I do believe on that little bit longer fraction of the second your brain gonna see other things and they keep Keep looking, keep looking, and complete. I, I, the people coming asking me, "What do you write?" It really doesn't matter. Yeah. That's like I'm playing with you. I want <laughs> you stay, you stay a little bit longer yeah. on my image. I work very hard for this one. It doesn't matter. It's a broken narrative. You know what do you want to know? Yeah. Seriously, if I uh, tell you the truth, uh, on my last show, it was which was Sunday. I had two images and. Uh, Five people asked me, what are you writing? I told the five people five different stories. <laughs> because to me, it doesn't matter really what I'm telling you. Yeah. Whether, you know, it's just like drawing your attention and giving different dimension to dimen- two-dimensional storytelling. It's fascinating because anyone who's, who reads Farsi will take a look at it and just go, Yeah, it's, they, it's not, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's just words. Well, it's it's just, it doesn't matter. You know, <laughs> you know I, part, of, part of what I like about the work is the fact that you were suggesting to people that don't rely on what I intended for the Thank work. Thank you. <laughs> Make it your own. Experience it in whatever way that you want to experience it, and that's and that's okay. Yeah, that that's it's not, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, but 
part of part of being able to do that as an artist is trusting yourself, right? Yes. Because some people will go on on a piece of work and they want the same goal. They want people to linger on their work, and but uh, some people are either they can be very sort of a, a controlling and exacting, right? Mm-hmm. It's like it has to be sort of perfect because I want this sort of experience and it doesn't seem like that's where you're coming from that you you there's a sort of uh, intuitiveness and naturalness that comes to it but it's it's hard to get there because photography is such a technical technical practice right yes and part of part of it is as an artist is just being able to surrender and just let it go and not always feeling like you're in control and when you're young that idea is completely antithetical it doesn't make sense that at some point you have to sort of just let go and you don't have to have your, you know, your hands around the neck of your work. So tell me about you being able to make that kind of transition as a young photographer and a young artist. Did it come easy for you? It, it was easy. As you know, at, you know, studying at the art center with those uh, teachers from the after World War II training, like uh, Archie Frante, Szynski, Mr. Ken, and this these people, if things wasn't certain way, they wouldn't accept it. You know, I had a hard time with them. You know, that's why they called me Kaminsky. They always had this Kaminsky. I don't know who Kaminsky was because uh, he. They didn't like avant garde work. They thought photography is just here, light comes from left, and the camera looks at them, yeah. and then you get to get the background light, you get a print and bright, your black has to be this way, your yeah. white has to be. I did went through that training and learned it, and I thought it's boring because sometimes you print, uh, it's just different mood you are. Look at this planet, there is constant changing. Why yeah. not us? So that coming out of the norm and becoming something else became for me a goal. I want to do this one right, but I don't want to do this one. You know, after four term, you have more more uh, freedom yeah, more of doing right. that one. When I started working for the surfing companies in 90s, they loved Holga. And if you would shoot Holga for Mr. Ken, they would kill you. They would give you like an <laughs> F and you had to take the class again. But I saw these people liking it. So then I saw the possibility of them. Then I keep moving forward, keep moving forward. And I started writing. It's not like element of the Farsi inside that thing's not that much. I like to write Farsi because I think it's, it's a prettier. From right to left, I can, yeah. I can put the V as much as I want to go this side of the paper or this side of the negative. And uh, I thought it would be interesting for the West. One will shows the shape of alphabet because here a lot of people don't know about the other things. They think it's only one language and that's English. You know, if they go too fancy, they become French. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there is other a lot of other type of writing um, is happening. You know, I can show you. I have a book which. uh, uh, shows the movement of changing of the Farsi from Sanskrit, then attack of Arabs to Iran, they only four words survived. The rest wow. of them, they burned all the books. It's like totally like ISIS. They burned the books, they 
cut all the Persian buildings. They 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 wanted to change it, mm-hmm. you know. So only four words survived, which I use that four word a lot in my work. Not just to be nationalist. Well, every flower has its own smell, and I yeah. wanna I wanna show that one. hope you're enjoying the show thanks again for for listening uh we've been around since 2006 and uh i'd like to think that we're going strong but a lot of it is because of listeners like you who have tuned in every week who have shared your love of the show with others and have supported us financially uh it makes and continues to make a a huge huge difference and i and i can't thank you enough and if you want to continue to support us there are so many things that you can do. You can become a Patreon supporter and contribute $5 or more a month or make a one-time contribution via PayPal, just like listener William Tanzer did recently. You can write a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And even better, if you really enjoy an episode, spread the word via an email to a friend, a post on your social networks, or old school word of mouth. All of it is important and it's invaluable. So, Thank you again for your support and being a part of the Candid Frame. Help the Candid Frame to continue bringing you great conversations with some of the world's best photographers. You can do this by supporting our Patreon effort by committing as little as $5 or more a month. When you do this, you not only help us to meet the cost of production, but provide us the time and resources we need to bring you conversations you won't hear anywhere else. Sign up today by visiting patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame. Thank you. You work with film. You work with like medium format, large format. You work with Polaroid. And one of the things that fascinates me about those mediums is not just the way they look. I mean, they have a distinctive look, but it involves a very different physical process, right? In terms of how you handle each camera. And then when it comes into the lab, you're having to do things actively with your body. It's not like you sit at a computer with just your hand and your wrist moving. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and I'm wondering, I'm wondering for you whether the physicality of how you make photographs and how you make your prints. Is that a part of where you derive the joy of the process from? I really can't tell you exactly what it is, but I like large format because I get the chance to shoot only one, especially these Mm. days, you know, maybe two. But when I shoot two and a quarter, I shoot two, three, you know. Okay. And when I have 35, I shoot more than that one, you know. Mm. I like it because on large format, I, I experienced it. As soon as you put the camera and your cedar comes out here, see that big camera, it takes you seriously, it you has know. A presence. Yeah. yeah. The, he, he has to follow your direction. Then you can manipulate them. You know, when you have a 35, you shoot three, four, mm-hmm. hopefully getting one which you're looking for. But in large format, you can't do that. You know, you have to be decisive where you want to go. So when you're making, say, 
working with large format and you've got maybe one or two sheets of paper or whatever material that you're using, a film to shoot. Are you very exacting in terms of what you want to get from that shot or are you sort of a little sort of loosey-goosey because you know, oh, this is just the foundation from which I'm going to build upon? No, 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 no. I have idea. Okay. All of my portrait, I want to get inside the people's soul. I wanted the moment, they even then themselves don't know that's what is that moment is. You know, mm-hmm. when they sit there, then you take your time for a few seconds, and then you go, you have to load the film in the back of the camera, come out of the closet and go here. I want to get in their souls. Their eyes are the gates of their, their my attention. If you look at mostly, I, I focus on the eyes and I let everything else goes away. And most of the time, technically, I shoot at 5.6. I like that. And uh, I just want to get them. Yeah. I want to get the, the moment which I like them. It's just, uh, then when they look at the pictures, uh, oh, is that me? That's that yeah. gives me such a beautiful pleasure because they ask question about themselves. Is that me? Of course, it's you. Yeah, but there's a picture of you. Yeah, and it's interesting because I sat for a. Um, I'm forgetting the um, the process, but it was um, one of the old process chemi- old glass plate. Yeah, tin type sort Colo- of. Tin, Colo- yeah, collodion. yeah, collodion. So I sat there, and it was really sort of interesting being in front of the camera for the purpose of that 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 photograph, because it really sort of it called on me to just just be there, to just be present, which is unlike when I'm photographed with a camera phone, right, where I'm very sort of self conscious mm-hmm. and everyone is. But when you sit there and you're having to sort of sit there for a while, <laughs> yeah, you can't. It's really hard to put on the face, the pose that you normally put out. You really are called on to be present. And I think what you're speaking about is capturing that sort of unguarded moment where people are sort of as genuine as they can possibly be in front of a camera. And it's easier to do that when you're working with a large camera like that. And there's not this 36, 90, 150 photographs that are being being made. So once once you have that portrait and you've gotten captured some semblance of that person's soul when you process the film you make the print and you look at the print how long before you start playing with the negative or the print tell you the truth i didn't time it but uh it takes a while you know how i'm gonna mix this two negative which negative fits to negative first of all you know it if you want to shoot it all to come out seen you have to mark your tripod so everybody sits in the same right. angle and 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 to mix it sometimes i go closer sometimes i go back and then try to mix this together later on Okay, so they can. That, that's totally different process. That becomes uh, a post production. Yeah. You know, later on you see, he says, oh, God, I can't mix this together. Let me see how it looks like. But when I'm shooting it, I'm not planning to mix it. I'm okay. shooting you as you are. Later on, I'll, I'll discover something you're feeling or your looks. 
because and also I don't shoot in one twenty fifth of the second. My spacers are either one second or half a second. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, because I want to paint a little bit longer. You know, just one twenty fifth, one twenty, two hundred fifty. Yeah. It's just like fraction of the yeah, second. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, because by going with that slower shutter speed, you're also not allowing that one fraction of a second to define who that person is. You're allowing that whole... This is, yeah. this is who this person is for that duration yeah. of that moment. Okay. Even though it's not technically sharp and all those other things we usually... So we use to subjectively judge a photograph. It's like, no, no, this is how this person exists within this finite period of time. That's fascinating. Um, so what you're talking about here, though, is the fact that you will accumulate work and sometimes it may be days weeks months maybe even years, years. before you incorporated it with other true true so when you have so much work to sort of pull from do you sort of like you create something and then you go oh i have that image that i shot three years ago do you have it sitting in your mind or do you have to sort of go through your contact sheets to search for it how do you sort of figure out what's what because like you said you're always producing work and it's hard enough for the computer to figure out where everything is, right? Yeah, you, you're right. You get to look for it. Yeah, yeah, so how do you, are you pretty organized in terms of where you put no. stuff? <laughs> <laughs> Hell no. Sorry for bad language. But that's why I shot, like to shoot 8 by 10 because I shoot either one or yeah, two and I know where they are at. Yeah. yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I don't. But sometimes I look for the something else. I found something else. Then I say, oh, oh wow, this, this, I, I forgot about this. Now I can mix this one with this ones. Hmm. Or I can write this ones, you know. It's just a process. Constant process, you know. All the time I'm sitting and walking, I'm thinking photography, how I'm going to do it, where I'm going to do it. Especially the Art Center days, I was really colorist. I wanted to see, I didn't want to RGB to tell me what to do or Kodak wants me to do. I always want to move it on. That's why I started bleaching. You know, as you know, it colored film has a three layers. Yeah. I would get rid of the uh, red, cyan. I would get rid of the cyan by bleaching it very carefully because they're all like a microns are stacking together. Mm. If you work with it, be patient, you can actually take the cyan layers and out of it. Then you have uh, blue and uh, magenta and uh, blue goes to yellow. Then you have two mixed color and sometimes you have leftover of the, you couldn't peel it out correctly of that one. Those are all temperatures. When you're printing it, it gives you different shade of the colors. Always they told me, how you get your colors? I just don't get, I didn't like Kodak or Fuji's colors. You know, I would try to get them a little bit out of the, what it was, or you tell me what it would be. And that's why uh, some of my teachers those days, they called me chemist. Kaminsky, chemist, you know, these okay, were yeah. all my titles. you like the experimenting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to I be able to go forward. You know, we, we both teach a lot of um, students. And sometimes that experimentation is towards a goal. They see someone else has done something interesting, and so they'll experiment because they want to emulate what someone else is doing, and they want to sort of figure it out. You seem to be uh, very contrary to that. You're experiment, you're experimenting, but you're not 
in search of emulating someone else as you are trying to create something that mirrors what you have imagined in your head. And for me, that, that, that means that you have an interest, intrinsic trust with how you are imagining something, even though you have not seen it reflected in other people's work, okay? okay. That is a very difficult place to be as an artist, to be confident with that. Because as you've said, people have looked at your work and they just go, what the hell is Hadi doing? This, isn't, this doesn't fit into the box. Yes. And when you are surrounded by people who are trying to fit into the box and you are sort of struggling as, as an artist trying to make your way, it is very tempting to say, okay, I, I can't continue following this because no one likes it. No one's going to pay me for this. So maybe I should start doing more acceptable commercial work. But you stayed very true to that. So how have you been able to stay committed to that voice that you have to be able to continue doing the work over the period of time that you have? What do you give credit to for that? To myself? (laughs) (laughs) As I told you, I really do believe that every flower is has their own sense. Mm. And I always want to be my own. I, I looked at this. Sometimes people call me Shirin and Nishat, you know, that ladies artist which just started writing on the images. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. And, but she was an original. Before then, they did it. Also, right. people, mm-hmm. like in a cave, they draw and they mm-hmm. put something else in it. And it didn't bother me. They Some people come here to buy things. Oh, that's Shirin and Nishat. You know, I don't get bother with it and you know I actually told Roshi I want to have a show titled in Honest to God I'm not shooting the shot I'm myself because I do really trust myself I I, I think I don't want to be look like uh, Irving Penn I don't want to be look like all those big cats right. I want to be just myself as an artist if I don't sell it I'm so happy making it. You can you can I can't tell you describe you how joyful it is to making it. Mm-hmm. Cuz you can put the price on it. If they like it, they buy it. If they don't like it, I like to have it. Yeah. I have that attitude and uh I work hard to become in this one. I don't uh, uh compromise this when I was working for Gotcha in the 90s, I said, oh, we like Craig Gorman. Can you do that? I said, no, go hire Craig Gorman. <laughs> yeah. You know, not that they're they are amazing photographers, but, you know, I, I'm not trying to be amazing. I'm just trying to communicate with you as an artist. Yeah. I want to be responsible. I want to be me. I want to, I want to, Stay author, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to come permission. Do you tell me, okay, I'll buy this one, and you just instead of red put that. I can't do it. I tell you the truth. I I create my images in total control of myself. If I have a mistake, I blame it myself, or you know, oh, what I'm gonna do? I don't. I don't like as an artist the money to give me heartbeat. And also extra heartbeat, and also living in Los Angeles is expensive city. You know, you got to make money. Otherwise, you know, how are you going to pay these things? Now, one of the things that's because of the way that you work and because how much much effort and time is involved in it, 
I'll speak for myself. There's sometimes when I'm working on something, it's taking me a, a good period of time to do. And I'll get started, I'll be very enthusiastic about the idea, this is just wonderful. And then just the normal obstacles start showing up, right? Mm-hmm. And it's becoming more difficult to do, so, and I begin to doubt myself. And there's sometimes I just have to look at it and go, okay, I don't care how bad I'm feeling, I'm just gonna push through and just do it. And there are other times when it's just like, this is not gonna work, and I just need to redirect that energy to some, something else. And that could be a really sort of difficult choice to make, because sometimes, you know, you may be tempted to give up on something that you shouldn't, because if you just keep going, it'll pay off. But there are other times where it's just like, it's, it's not going anywhere. And I'm wondering for you, when you've experienced those moments, how you sort of, uh, discern and parse where you, when you need to really stay committed and when you just need to sort of just um, let it go and move on. You know, I uh, sometimes I make a work in half and I get really tired of it, as you said. Mm-hmm. I don't know where I'm going with it. I just put them aside and go back to it a month, two months later, and I look at it. Then I, I start working again, continuing it, you know. Usually the second time I finish it. Okay. Usually, most of the time, I finish it on the second time and say, I'm tired of this one, I'm going to go this one. You know, as, as you can see, I have downstairs, I can work on this table, then I have a dark room upstairs. Those, those moments are changing, you know, or I'll take a walk, or because that's why I don't like deadlines. When you have a deadline, you get to finish it. Yeah. And then you're not finishing the way you want it because it's just the finishing is important, not how to finish it. Yeah, I was working on a, on a I'm working right now on a fine art project. It's the first time I've ever really done anything, quote unquote, fine art. And uh, I had to come up with a concept. You know, I had to write it down to sort of explain what I'm going for and all this other stuff. And it was really strange to have to explain and put into words something that I had yet to create. It's very, it's good for me. It's good for me because it's different, right? And then seeing the work and seeing that it's taking step along the lines is sort of good. But part of me is kind of like you, is that I, I, I don't want to be the definer of the work for the people who come, come upon it. Mm-hmm. I don't want it to be so rigidly defined by the concept that I came up with that it it reduces people being able to look at it and discover it on their own terms. And it seems like you like that. You want people to discover it and yeah. interpret it on their own terms. But in just, just, just the nature of the fine art world as it is, that in terms of the, the gallery owners, the curators, the buyers, they, want, they feel like art has to have as rigid a uh, structure in Mm -hmm. terms of the work as the means by which it's often created because photography is so rigid in terms of you know shutter speed aperture it's like okay it's Mm -hmm. and then they expect that the work should be in line with that and I think you are sort of in, in, in even though that there is a very technical exacting process for the creation of the work that that doesn't and shouldn't apply to the way people see and experience the work and I think that's why it's kind of difficult for you to sort of um, find it difficult to really embrace the idea of explaining. And because humor. as soon as I start explaining, they have another question. Then you find out that you get to go through whole things. You know, you do. You, I 
do believe that the artist shouldn't go after their work and try to explain it what it is. You know, visual arts is education. You learn more and more as you grow up in the visual arts. The audience or the people, your buyers, they should move on too. Yeah. You know, they should, if something is visually pleasant for them, there is no explanation. You know, explanation is for the writers, you know, or, or novels, you know, the art, I mean... But also you know that the old painting, they said if there is no story on a painting, it's just a painting. Yeah. But I think as long as the artist knows what the story is, everybody else doesn't need to know. Right? Thank you. Yeah, That's it's, very it's true. Just, it's just yeah, a, it's whatever yeah. sort of you needed in order to yeah. create the work. And after that... That's it. You know, because sometimes I go, well, what do you, what do you, what do you think it's about? What does yeah, it make you feel? Yeah. And then they say... They're like a drama thing. And you then know? you go, that's good. Yeah, that's what I told you. I told uh, in in one day, in one image, I told five different stories. I wish yeah. I could record myself, but I knew it, what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, because it really doesn't. Yeah, doesn't I, it does. All five of them are correct. All five of them are wrong. Because it's really about can whatever you whatever whatever you put into it. By the time it's up on the wall, you're done. I'm done. It's like it's just like it's just like music, right? It, it is not complete just because there's a um, CD or an album or a digital file. That song, that album is not complete until there's somebody sitting in a chair with headphones on listening to it. To it. Maybe a few times. Yeah, probably a few times. But that's the same thing with a photograph. Yeah, I, uh, cinema and music are a huge influence on me. I love music. Oh, yeah, you got a you got Yeah, I have like 10,000 vinyls at home. You know, I carry the one I want 10,000? Yeah Something Jeez. like that I have like a 5,000 CDs And I hate them now Then I heard <laughs> In Japan is, is really popular CD now You know The tape oh, is yeah. back And I thought I should box them And go to Japan And sit next to the Tokyo streets And start yeah. selling them <laughs> Because I have Really good collections On them You know You know I married uh, To a black woman uh-huh. And she was Opera singer and her uncle was a, a pianist, jazz pianist. Okay. And I, I fell in love with music through her because every morning she had to get up and go to, on the shower and practice her voice because of the voice. And at first I, I was a little bit uncomfortable, then I started loving it. And the musician's life and history of the music in America, especially, is just fascinates me. It's just American music. I mean, jazz is only American music. We yeah. can do born in America, but you know, people like Charlie Parker, Alice Coltrane, another giant, leave the shadow of the John Coltrane as another giant. You know. The whole story of him, how the politics of the music, how these musicians are Dolphys. Dolphys' life is tragedy, Eric Dolphys. They thought he's a black man and he was a diabetic. And they thought he's a heroine passed out. So they killed this young man and he was amazing, talented, Mm. you know, or Mengus, or even Struggle of the Nina Simone, you know, inspired me. You know, they blacklisted her and the flips came out from Netherlands, started publishing her music. It's just like every time I listen to her voice, 
I I see history. I see a story on them. You know, I feel it. It gives me goosebumps how they lived as an artist in the society, which enjoyed their music, but never respect them as much as they deserve it to. Do you sometimes feel that 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 to some degree yourself? Yes, so. Oh. I connect them because uh, I don't want to talk about races, but I'm a brown man and I lived in America. And uh, I suffered a lot emotionally, you know, mm. for various reasons. I don't want to go back to it and explain it. Yes, I do see it not on that degree, you know. Yeah. I remember when when you listen to Nina Simone, a song called Goddamn Mississippi. Yeah, yeah Mississippi Goddamn, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mississippi Goddamn, it just gives you goosebumps. Mm hmm. Or he start, she starts live, I forgot the song's title, in the Carnegie House with this piano. Yeah. It's just a slave march. Mm-hmm. Boom, boom, boom. Those are like, inspires me. I said, wow, what, how giant they were. How gifted they were for mankind. And never was appreciated. You know that. All the yeah. history of the Jazz Parker and those cats, they would give him heroin salt purposely. Mm-hmm. You know, or the story of the crack in the 80s, you know. And the whole, you know, how these things are created next to each other, it makes me stronger as an artist and keep, keep doing it, keep doing it. Even, yeah. you know, don't feel like a direction. I don't need direction. I'm, I'm glad you brought up those musicians because it makes... What you are doing in your photographs make just that much more sense, because those 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 musicians, considering all not just the the challenges they faced as you know black people or women in, in whatever period of time that they were in, but that they took all of that experience, and that it found its way into their work. That whether it was their voice, whether it was the saxophone, whether it was a set of drums, yes, that so. they were like sort of their circular, ter- circulatory system, their nerve endings became part and parcel of whatever they were using. And it seems like that is the same thing for you. You are kind of like a jazz artist, but you're using photographs. And you are, instead of telling stories with lyrics and notes, you're doing it with photographs, with oils and <laughs> pencils and whatever you're using in order to sort of massage it. That's that sort of spontaneity is what you're going for in in, in that true, work. True, true, Because I, I look at it, and even though I know there's some intentionality behind all of your, your pictures, there is a still a feeling of spontaneity that is normally inherent just to a straight photograph, but that you sort of take all this other stuff and you're like going, this is still a spontaneous piece of work, even though it may take you 20 hours that's to, very to true. finish it. Is, is that, yeah, it you... is totally true. And I work on the moment, you know, at the time I feel it because artists has to represent their time they're living in it. You know, that's yeah, why that's we listen uh, to Nina Simone. You feel the time of the suffering of the 60s, you know, and, and, and look at the 70s music. It's just a little bit less, you know, than 70s music is amazing. They all represent their time. I think that's why we are here through the universe to sort of like 
paint that one as an artist's individuality so you can feel the time through his or her eyes or her voice or her work. Well, Hadi, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for our listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it could be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that photographer be and why? Cartier-Bronson. Okay, why? Because he shot with a 50 millimeter lens and he thought if you use other kind of lens and you are really manipulating the reality, if you like it, go forward. If you don't like it, go backward. And as you see it, he, he for me, as, as a, starting as a street uh, photographer, he was my model, you know. I look at that, and I loved a lot of them. Like, other one is Joseph Kodelka. Oh, Kodelka, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love his work, especially on the gypsies. Sometimes, you know, I'm talking to you, I get goosebumps of his images looking at it. There is another French photographer, uh, I forgot, uh, Kalahari, he did uh, some uh, beautiful work. I have his work, but at this moment, I don't know where I put it. Uh, he did on. He lived in Moscow for four years, and he shot. He's a French photographer, and he shot a lot of uh, addict people, the mm. underground people, and in his colors, his descriptions is just amazing. Jesus, I wish I could remember. Uh, we'll sure we'll find him. Hadi, thank you so much for having oh, me. Oh, my pleasure, Saul. I hope. Thanks to Hadi for sharing his time and story with us. A solo exhibition of Hadi's work will be on display next month on October 6th at the Space for Advocacy in Los Angeles, where a film on his life and career will also debut. You can find out more in the links in the show notes. And we still have spots available for my workshop in Tokyo, Japan in December. I'm holding it in collaboration with photographer George Nabecci, a former guest of the show. He has been offering some amazing experiences with other photographers, including Sam Abel, Arthur Meyerson, and Greg Gorman. So I'm very humbled to be included in such company. And you can find out more about my workshop and the others he offers by visiting nabeccicreatives.com. And check out my YouTube channel, where I offer comments and photography submitted by TCF listeners who contribute to the Candid Frame Flickr pool. Check out the TCF Flickr pool and our YouTube channel by clicking on the link in the show notes and the website. My latest book, Making Photographs, Developing a Personal Visual Workflow, is now available. And as I said last week, it's now available in Europe in German. So if you're interested in buying it uh, in German, it's available out there now. But if you're interested in the English version, you can purchase it today and receive 40% off the list price when you order it from the Rocky Nook website. Use the promo code PORELLO40 at checkout to take advantage of the discount. And you can receive three free copies of my previously published ebooks by signing up for the Candor Frame mailing list, where I share my thoughts about life, photography, and keep you updated on TCF events. Not all episodes may be available on your podcaster app of choice. So to download, listen, and share any and all episodes of the Candid Frame, download the TCF app for Apple iOS and Android. And because of your support, it's free. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor, who you can find at theothermartintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at incompetech.com. And this is Ibarian X, and this is 
and this is Ibarian X, and this is The Candor Frame.